The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. There was, there was a higher power. At work, or or a hand of an X, a, a dead X was looking out for him up there. The hand of Lene. Yeah, yeah, it helps when you've got when you got twelve on defense. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. That's the true twelfth man, right? Twelfth woman. <laughs> well, no, actually, I guess technically it was a man, but yeah. <laughs> These are the tales of college football past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons, on and off field moments, memories of personal fandom catastrophe and elation, and yes, alcohol. I'm Jeremy. I'm Matt. I'm Joe. And I'm Kyle. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the college football stories. I'm Mike Renner, and I'm going to tell you the story, or I probably should say tragedy, of the 2012 Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Uh, I, for full context here, I graduated from Notre Dame the year prior. So I graduated in spring of 2012. This was the fall of 2012, so I wasn't still in school then. And I witnessed some lean years. I think my freshman and sophomore year, they went six and six both years, I want to say. And then Charlie Weiss got fired. Um, Brian Kelly got hired. Started off well. I mean, it was better than better than Charlie Weiss, but still not, you know, the Notre Dame that you wanted. You didn't just come in and turn the program around right away. I think they went eight and four or around that as first two seasons. Uh, and then uh, I, I was excited, though, for 2012 because it was the year Everett Golson was starting. And when I was at Notre Dame, I, I love playing pickup basketball on Everett Golson. I remember when he got recruited, he was going to be – he got, I, I just remember he got an offer to play basketball and football at North Carolina. And I was like, oh shit, like quarterback gets an offer to play basketball at North Carolina. That's no small deal. And so I was just excited to see what he could do as an athlete playing quarterback position after we had, you know, statues like Dane Christ, uh, Jimmy Clausen before that, just someone who was athletic who could make plays. And so I, so I had some expectations for them. I was excited. I thought it was going to be, this was kind of building up to this year in terms of the recruiting classes that Brian Kelly brought in. So I, I thought they could do well. Did not think the national championship was in the mix. That, that, that's for damn sure. I think there was kind of pressure on Brian Kelly. I, I think people expected him to be, I mean, think back to Charlie Weiss's first year, they went to, uh, you know, one of the New Year's Day Bowls. I want to say Sugar Bowl, Cotton Bowl. Like they, 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 Charlie the Weiss turned the program around like right away. And Brian Kelly was in, uh, I think, year three at this time and had not brought them back to prominence in college football. So there was, I think, a lot of pressure around the program, but there were, I think, there were high expectations too. People expected this team to be, this was his first real, 
you know, three recruiting classes. This this was his first recruiting classes being a junior year now. Some of those guys should actually be, you know, competing in the starting lineup. So that was uh, kind of like put up or shut up for Brian Kelly. Yeah. So N- Navy was week one, and I hated playing Navy every year. Like N- Navy <laughs> is the worst team to have on your schedule every year because oh, yeah. you beat Navy, everyone's just like, yeah, you should beat Navy. But like no one, no one gives you any. It doesn't matter how good Navy is that year. Navy ends the season ranked. Sometimes they've gone ten and two t- years at Notre Dame, and, um, and you get no love for beating a good Navy team. So every year playing Navy is just your butthole is like puckered from start to finish because they <laughs> run this stupid triple option. They always have an athletic quarterback. It's just a game you have to prepare for differently. You almost want to catch them week one so that you have the whole season, the off season to prepare. Or like actually get your guys up to speed when you catch them in the middle of the year and you have one week to prepare for the stupid triple option, you can get <laughs> caught. And that's how Navy kind of that's the only way they have success because they're not they don't put out talent in the NFL. They're not, you know, super they can't even have offensive linemen be over three hundred pounds because obviously they have to be in the Navy. <laughs> they have to run and they actually be in good shape. So this year though, first year of the, you know, going back to Ireland. It, everything was in Notre Dame's favor here. They had the whole offseason. Start to finish, it was a slaughter, which that's the way I like Navy games to go, is to not ever be close, to not ever feel like it's kind of neck and neck because those are the games that I think Navy beat. Navy, when I was at Notre Dame, ended the stupid. It was like 46 years they'd beaten them in a row, and Navy beat Notre Dame. Was, they, they broke the streak when I was there, and it was a brutal game to watch. And uh, so thank God Week one, getting Navy off schedule with a win in the recent memory is always a good thing. Well, they they broke the streak when you were there and then you left and then status quo resumed. Okay. Well, if you're trying to put it on me, then Navy <laughs> was my fault in some way, shape, or form. I don't think that's the case. Now, I didn't help out the football team at all while I was there, so maybe I could have done more. But uh, no, I, it was... It was more that was the state of the program prior to this year. They were just Weiss did not Weiss did not recruit defensive talent. That, that was his downfall. He focused too much on the offensive side of the ball, and, and they just did not bring in defenders. And this team actually was the first one, Brian Kelly, where it's like, oh, they got NFL talent on the defensive line. They got NFL talent at linebacker that just was not there under under uh, Charlie Weiss. So then you know week two. You're ranked 22, you know, nothing special there, but always nice to see the number next to next to the name. And then you get Purdue. I remember this game for two reasons. The Purdue Notre Dame, you have two reasons that year. One is because it was such a classic. It just reminded me of every game during like when I was there at school in that they they dominated like they they were the better team from start to finish there was no debate in any of that but you're looking up the scoreboard in the fourth quarter and somehow it's 17 to 17. but this was the this is when the legend of tommy reese was born this is the first time he comes in i think he came in what three or four times throughout the year and kind of saved them in the tight situations because everett golson was admittedly a bit of a head case he just he did not have the temperament for clutch situations uh and i'll get to that a little later on uh, in the national championship game, but it, it was Tommy Reese came in, led them back, game-winning whatever. I think it was a field goal with a few minutes left in the game, and I was just like, thank you, God, that they got through that game because if they would have lost that game, that, that would have – it would have it would have felt like USF twice as last year when it was just like that was – I think it was Brian Kelly's maybe first year. It was just like 
they never should have lost that game, but somehow they did. Thank God they pulled that one out. And that one got held against them a little bit until they ended up going 12-0 and and like making it that the committee couldn't leave them out of the playoffs. But everyone down the stretch is like, dude, they beat Purdue by three. And I'm just like, watch the game. It really – it was so much – they got held up against them because they were such a defensive-minded team all year, uh, and they won close games, but they won close games because they held teams to, like, 10, 13, 14. Like, they just didn't allow a lot of points all year long, and so they're going to be close games if you're winning by defense. So uh, that was kind of the first of those games that was close that was just a defensive struggle. After kind of surviving the gauntlet of Navy-Purdue, uh, you get a top-10 matchup against... Michigan State on the road. Yeah, I think this is when I realized that this Notre Dame defense was legit. Like, they go against a good Michigan State team. Michigan State's always kind of uh, was kind of their trip tonight. They always had, went back and forth against Michigan State. They were very evenly matched games over the years when they were playing and just handled them defensively. Like, Michigan State had no answer, could do nothing offensively. Like, under 200 total yards in a game for a team that was supposed to be good, a top 10 team in the country to hold them to that. And that's when you just saw the the playmakers that they had, you know, Lewis Nix, you know, Stefan Tewitt, like Manti Teo, like these guys were different than the Notre Dame defenders that we had seen the past handful of years. That's when I was like, damn, like this team, I, I still didn't think national championship game, but that was the first time that this team seemed like, you know, it, it was a a a top, obviously, uh, top ten team in the country, and this was also when I think the Manti Teo the and his girlfriend, quote unquote, uh, hmm. died. I think that week, or it was leading up to that week, and it was kind of rallied rallied the troops, uh, which in retrospect is hilarious, uh, and we'll obviously talk about that a little later in that whole saga, but. My God, uh, they really leaned into that. ESPN and every pretty much everyone leaned into that for the good portion of the season. Uh, Nante Teo's uh, Lene Kakua was it his, his infamous ex, yes. yeah. non-existent girlfriend. <laughs> he was playing possessed though. He had twelve tackles, a fumble, broke up a couple passes. Like he was nuts, and then that just kept feeding and building to the next game too, where he had like, they had the, um, his grandma died, I think actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, that was real. The next game. Actually, grandma dying was real. Okay. Just, that wasn't some dude pretending but, to be his grandma, but it was also, so like he had seven picks that year. He had like a ton of picks and then he gets like fourth in the Heisman voting. And if you go back and watch the picks, five of them, we're, we're lucky. Like the ball bounces off a of receiver's hands to Manti Teo. The ball gets tipped at the line to Manti Teo. It was not, there was, there was a higher power at, at work or, or a hand <laughs> of an X, a, a dead X was looking out for him up there. The hand of Lene. Yeah, it helps when you've got, when you got 12 on defense. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's the true 12th man, right? 12th woman. <laughs> Oh, no, actually, I guess technically it was a man. But, yeah. <laughs> so you're saying if he would have been drafted by Seattle, he'd still be in the, <laughs> be in the Hall right. of Fame. Bobby <laughs> Wagner and Manti, they'd have won so many more Super Bowls. And when they...
I, I do. I would love to see an alternate version of history where it's just no one ever figured it out. Just see how Manti Teo did in the NFL. Or it like came out way later. You're like year three in the NFL. It's like, you know what? That was actually not real. All right. Um, so let's move to Michigan. Notre Dame's up to 11 now after defeating Michigan State. Um, playing back at home. Yeah, so Michigan game. Denard Robinson was maybe my least favorite player uh, of all time at this time because he went for he had an all time game at Notre Dame Stadium. I believe it was my junior year, maybe my senior year. I, I can't exactly remember, but he had an all time game against Notre Dame. He ran for like over two hundred yards, passed for over two hundred yards, like broke some Michigan records or whatever. It was just a blowout. Michigan's how is Notre Dame, and he's like, I'm like, how do you fuck do you defend this? He runs like a four three. He's he can sometimes pass, but he's a glorified, like, elite running back. And then this game was the one game I was at this year. The one game I came back to Notre Dame Stadium. Um, Were you so wearing a lay? Got, I was not wearing a lay. I, I remember that, but I was definitely not wearing a lay. That was uh, not my jam. But it was it was awesome. He's just throwing picks left and right. Like, they, they just had no... Jared Robinson just had nothing. Like I, I don't know what happened to Bob Diaco that year, because um, he was not a great defense coordinator before that year. Has quite obviously not been a good defense coordinator since, and has like lost his mind in press conferences since. Like if you've ever seen any Bob Diaco press conference, it's one of the most awkward experiences. It's it feels like a a prank he's pulling on you every week. But maybe he got that season. That season. That season. He was. A man possessed because, I mean, they just, Michigan did nothing. Like, straight up, they did nothing offensively. Um, like I said, I think four picks, a fumble, uh, finally shut down Denard Robinson. And, and Ever Golson didn't do much great uh, in that game, but they just, they did enough. And that was kind of like the, kind of the story all year offensively. They, they didn't look good offensively. And really, any game against any real team, but they always just kind of did enough and snuck by once again. Yeah, held the opponent without a touchdown two straight weeks. Pretty good. Damn. I don't actually remember that they held them without a touchdown two straight weeks, but that was, I just remember that that year defensively, I remember so going into the national championship game, I was actually visiting my parents in Orlando and um, there's this, I'm at a gym down there. I'm at a YMCA. I had a YMCA membership up uh, wherever I was at the time up in, actually was in uh, Chicago at the time. I had a YMCA membership. So I was going to the YMCA down in Orlando and I'm talking to this guy. So I'm wearing a Notre Dame shirt and this guy starts talking to me about the national championship game. And he's a Florida fan. Uh, and I, and he's like, you're, you're not ready for Alabama. And he's like rooting for Alabama. I'm like, dude, you're a Florida fan. Like, why are you rooting for Alabama? It's like a really old guy. Um, and I'm just like, no, it's Notre Dame defense. Like, you don't realize it's different. Like, this, this, is, uh, this is the best defense in the country. Like, I, I get that they haven't blown anybody out, but they, no one's, you know, gotten the better of him. And he's like, you know, you're just not ready. And he, <laughs> I still remember to this day, he said, you don't realize the speed of these Southern blacks. And I'm just like, all right, dude, I'm going to head out. Oh my I'm going to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> oh my all right. Uh, so that was, 
that was that. But that, that's I still just I in my mind I'm like, man, this Notre Dame defense really is something different. It was like that Michigan game was part and parcel. That was like when I'm just like, goddamn, like this could be the best defense in the country. Yeah. After the um, what the the Dublin game was the Emerald Isle Classic. This one is the Shamrock series. Is it Soldier? Um, so yeah, just kind it's of lead us right? into that game. They use it know. still, right? Yeah. So I guess this was the first Shamrock series game. I, I think this was. I, I'm pretty sure it was. This is the first Shamrock series game, which they do every year. It is now, now. which is like a, a neutral site game against uh, you know another like blue blood ish or like a, another big school that they'll do at a neutral site. Um, and this was the, it was hyped up, you know, Catholics versus convicts was the thing in the eighties. Oh, yeah. uh, and that was like the big rivalry that those shirts were printed yeah. up. And I remember them reprinting some shirts like that. Now at Notre Dame, they weren't obviously selling them. They weren't s- sort of uh, certified by Notre Dame. Cause that's not the best uh, thing to be promoting as Catholics versus convicts, but sure. uh, it's a, it's a, it's a dope tagline, especially, you know, <laughs> we're on Notre Dame side, but uh did you get one of those shirts? Is that I never did actually. Sadly, I I, I kind of want one. Uh, I probably after the game in 2017 or whatever, where Miami basically did the opposite to Notre Dame, where they just blew them out the whole game. Uh, it was not was not feeling great about it. But I think I like Notre Dame's chances nowadays against Miami again. But after that one, I was really feeling it because it was just it was not close. It was hyped up as Catholics comics, but this was. This is basically Miami's lull that Notre Dame was experiencing the years prior where Miami was just, they didn't have it as a program. They were not, they were not quote unquote back. So this one, I mean, it got out of hand. I I really don't remember too much of it because from start to finish, like Miami did not belong on that field. And, And I actually do remember the thing about it was it was cold and the Miami players were complaining or like where every single player in Miami was wearing sleeves or, uh, you know, like sweatsh- like something under their jerseys and no one from Notre Dame was because it was like 40 degrees, something like that. Like it, not even that cold if you're from anywhere in the north, like if, if you go to school in Notre Dame. Um, so Miami was just not like some of those guys had never stepped foot under, you know, 60 degrees lives being from Miami and all of a sudden are thrown into that. So that that just they were not ready. I think the uh, the fire under Notre Dame was also uh, Everett Golson's one drive suspension when Tommy Reese went three and out, and then Golson goes forty one drops forty one points. I still do wonder what that suspension was from Golson because then obviously he went off the rails altogether and got caught cheating, and then got kicked out uh, of Notre Dame, and his career just derailed. And I. I thought he was so talented, like as a passer. I thought he could could be an NFL quarterback, even though he was short. But he just something was not there with him, and this was kind of the beginning of the hints of that with the undisclosed reasons reason suspension. Mike, you're kind of rewriting history here, so why don't you tell us why he was suspended? I would guess. I, I mean, I would guess it was for academic reasons at that point he was not the just having met him he just seemed like he wanted to do his own thing like he probably was skipping classes is what i would guess it was like he was he was a guy who liked what he liked to do he liked music he liked uh obviously obviously football but 
and then he did not absolutely care for going to class or absolutely not cheating in class. So I think it was, I think it would be something like that. So they didn't Notre- recruit him at Notre Dame to play school. That's the thing. Like I, so when Notre, so when Notre Dame kicked out Everett Golson, um, I was obviously sad. I had high hopes for him, but I'm like, Hey, that's, that's Notre Dame. Any other school that's two weeks, whatever he's back on the field. Notre Dame said, you're gone. Um, that's, that's why, that's why I take pride. That's why I can hold my head high when I rock the Notre Dame gear at a bar on a Saturday and, and not, not be too upset when they get their ass kicked by Alabama because, hey, we got standards and we stick to them. And that's, that's, how, that's how life should be. Love it. Sp- spoken like a true domer. <laughs> and no one else cares except for Notre Dame people, but yeah, we, we like to <laughs> right. chest out. You got to keep that, uh, the helmet and the, the top of the chapel nice and shiny. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Stanford then. So game day is there at South Bend. Yeah, so this was kind of, I want to say this was right at, so it was right after Harbaugh at Stanford, right after he left, and he kind of built the program up. And this was kind of the prime of Stanford, they had like those four years there that just like pissed me off. Where I'm like, how the hell yeah. is Stanford good at football? One of the worst, one of the wor- like one of the worst fan bases, one of the worst stadiums. Like they fit like forty thousand people in their stadium every week, which is just for a, a program winning as much as they do. That's a disaster. Um, and obviously, they're in direct uh, competition with Notre Dame for recruits. They are, they're at this, they're, they're getting the Catholic school kids, the, the kids who care about academics, the, you know, the offensive linemen, they are in direct competition. Stanford is with Notre Dame for these guys. And so they're taking away all these recruits and they're getting pissed off that this is, that Stanford's kind of on the come up and Notre Dame's been on the lull. And this was kind of the, the game that turned things around that really propelled Notre Dame back on top. And now Stanford had some good years after that, but, uh, this was Notre Dame kind of putting their foot down and saying, "Hey, we're still we're still the lead dogs in this space." Uh, I remember Stefan Taylor was such it was such a good college running back, and he just was one of those big ass uh, guys that just four yards anytime he gets a handoff, and that was just so demoralizing to go against uh, because they would just. They would trust it. They would say four yards, four yards, four yards, and they would just keep taking it, keep taking it. And so, and Notre Dame's defense that year, they were the bend, don't break defense. And so they would kind of let them into the red zone and then all of a sudden throttle down, let them in the red zone, then throttle down. And so that game was just kind of a masterclass in that, even, and then down to the, to the last, whatever, fourth quarter, which this year was just filled with some dramatic endings. And it was, again, Tommy Reese gets them, comes in for Everett Golson, who's just not rising to the occasion whatsoever. Uh, Tommy Reese comes in. They, they kick a field goal to go ahead. Um, and then he had the touchdown to T.J. Jones right at the end. That was, like, way behind T.J. Jones. T.J. Jones makes a great catch. Um, and it really didn't have – great offensive talent that year. Uh, Tyler Eifert was their best offensive player. Uh, they had a, some good running backs, but this was not this was not a Notre Dame offense to be remembered in the history books by any means. 
but they finally grabbed the lead at the end. And this was this was the fourth down, the four down, right at the goal line. Stanford had four chances from I want to say within five yards each one. The like first down within five yards. I ran the ball all four times, and they had the 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 play that was reviewed. Uh, I think it was fourth down that was reviewed. That was any objective person looking back, and Stanford fans will complain. People will complain that he got it was it was not over. I, I will to this day scream from the goddamn Golden Dome saying he was not over the goal line on that fourth down conversion. Stephon Taylor, it just he didn't reach out, and there was no angle that could confirm it either. So that was. I was losing my mind. That was a game that I will honestly never that that fourth down stand was something that just that was probably the that's probably the pinnacle of that Notre Dame season. There there was no better there was no better moment in that season than that fourth fourth down stand at the goal line. What would the analytics at PFF say about running the ball four times on the goal line? So in the NFL now we would say to spread it out a little bit more. I remember Stanford's just packing that. That was Stanford football, though. Seven guys in formation, five five linemen, two tight ends, or even like a jumbo extra offensive lineman. And then you run, you run power, you pull a guard at the goal line, you hit it because that was where they won. And that's kind of like Notre Dame, where they win, where you can if you have higher academic standards. It's just it's the way of the world. You can recruit. Offensive linemen. That's the offensive linemen have the highest. Uh, gosh, what's the, the Wonderlick scores? Like you can recruit the guys along the offensive line. That's where you can win if you're a, a, a program with high academic standards. And so that's how Stanford's won. That was their game. I would have spread it out a little bit more if I wanted to run and then run power because you give your running back a little bit more space when you do that. And it was really tight. Notre Dame had a really good defensive line that year. That could really, I mean, they were moving last scrimmage. Lewis Nix, Stephen Tuitt, like those guys were not getting blown off the ball whatsoever. So I would not have necessarily ran those exact plays, uh, but that was Stanford football. I mean, still is Stanford football under David Shaw. So then BYU, Catholics versus Mormons. The Storm and Mormons. Um, so you're up to five in the country. Yeah, this was a very classic come down sort of game. You had, like I said, the, the pinnacle. This was the week before prior Stanford pinnacle of the Notre Dame season. And you go to BYU, you're playing BYU, and it's just you gave it all last week, and they didn't have it this week. Obviously, Golson's not even starting. And this is when this is when you saw why Tommy Reese wasn't also starting. Why you know Golson hadn't been anything special, but why it's like. Yeah, Tommy Reese is also very, very limited as a quarterback. He was not the answer. Even though he was the answer in the fourth quarter, he was not the answer as your actual starter. I don't remember too much about this game. I just remember being like, why the hell is it still close? But it, it, they pulled away at the end. Um, they, they had such a good trio of like a, one of the most complimentary backfields that you'll ever see in, in college football in terms of Theo Riddick was this incredibly shifty, great pass catcher. Sierra Wood was kind of a, a more of a bruising back, much more of an explosive athlete, straight line, uh, kind of like can make a guy miss and more elusive, like guys will bounce off of him. And then you had George Atkinson, uh, may he rest in peace, who was a 4-3 track star who 
you know, had so many big runs throughout the year. He would just come in, catch a draw or run a draw play and just take it 40 yards. Like, cause he's outrun everybody. It was not a nuanced, nuanced runner by any means, but if you gave him space, he would uh, make the most of it because the dude had wheels. So that was, that was kind of the offense that year. Cause like I said, the, the pass catchers were limited. Uh, Eifert, you had, when your tight end is your best receiver at the college level, that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of tight ends beside of, besides Kyle Pitts this past year at Florida are actually you want to feature in your offense. So uh, this game was very indicative of that, uh, that kind of the backfield carrying them. That was, I, I just feel like that one of all the games I remember going through, that one, the Wake Forest game, I'm just like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> I, had, again, I obviously watched, but I was just like, sure. To, to, uh, it's probably just like too, too complacent with the fact that I thought they were going to win. So even like, hey, top five team heading into BYU, you, you think yeah. you're going to lose that game? If you, that would have been, that would have been a fucking travesty. I mean, it would have been like, would have been like losing the pick game, which we'll get to. That was about the, you know, four feet from losing. So BYU, yeah. do, you, do you know why the uh, the Mormons wear magic underwear? Do not. Is this going to be a joke or what am I? No, I was just into? asking if you knew. No. <laughs> there was nothing. No, no, no follow up. No, I was just just wanted to start a conversation about magic underwear because maybe they didn't have enough magic underwear in the stadium <laughs> to win. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So Kyle's trying to avoid the Oklahoma game, but it's what, next. no. The next on the list is Pittsburgh. Mm. <laughs> ah, mm. yeah. So uh, your your sheet must be malfunctioning because we have this uh, top ten matchup here. Uh, it's at Oklahoma, so it's in Norman, which uh, must not be that difficult a place to play. This one was kind of the classic. No one gave Notre Dame any respect. They, they didn't think that they were going to like, – I didn't think they were going to go into Oklahoma. And, like, straight up, I didn't either. I didn't think they were going to go to Oklahoma and win a game that was not their M.O. for the past decade. Every big game, they came up short. Obviously, a big game on the road against Oklahoma was always good. And Landry Jones, obviously, hasn't, he wasn't, wasn't Sam Bradford. He wasn't the guys we've seen from Oklahoma late, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray. But he was an NFL quarterback, still is. So – that was a that was a talented Oklahoma team, but Notre Dame came in, defense did their job, and I think you really saw kind of the offense finally come alive in, in big situations. Sierra Wood had a massive run early in the game, and Sierra Wood was, you know, he he had his off field issues and whatnot, but he was the most talented running back on the Notre Dame team. He should have been a good NFL running back. Obviously, things did not work out for him, but that guy could play when he wanted to play. And this was the game he showed up. Um, so they were, it was another one. It was tight in the fourth quarter. They pull away down the stretch despite the stupid belldozer plays. I don't know if you remember, Blake Bell was their backup quarterback. Ended up um, playing tight end in the NFL. Might still be in the NFL playing tight end. But short yardage goal line situations, he would come in and call it the belldozer. Oklahoma would go fucking nuts, the fans. For this dude, 
just because he was he was like 6'5", 260, and would just run in a straight line. And just like it was so stupid, but it worked every single time. And he scored like two touchdowns in that game on the belldozer plays. Um, and But down the stretch, there was the play, the guy I had such high hopes for, Chris Brown, wide receiver, fresh, true freshman. I guess it was in the fourth quarter. He like I remember I, this is what I used to follow like Notre Dame recruiting so closely. Obviously, when you're in school, I was like, oh, this guy runs a four threes coming to Notre Dame. Like it's gonna be awesome. They never get guys that run four threes. He breaks for like a 50 yard uh, post route in that game in the fourth quarter. Golson hits him um, to set up a score in, in the fourth quarter, and then they just never look back from there. Chris Brown did dog shit over the course of his career ever since then, but. That play etched in my memory just for the fact that it just that was a you know a play that just they they never made in years prior. They never made that big play in the big situation. That was the first time they did offensively in that year, and, and then they just pulled away down the end and in the fourth quarter. So that was a that was a big one. That that one was like I said the the Stanford was still the pinnacle of that year, but that one was kind of just like. The momentum kept rolling after because you look at the schedule after that. You're like, oh, we got Pittsburgh, BC, Wake, USC. This could be real. Like this could be oh. that magical season. So that was the first time that you actually thought this might be a national championship team. Chris Brown could run a four three for those four point three seconds of relevance on that one play. Yeah. I I I have no regrets about Chris Brown's career because of that one play. He could he didn't have to do anything after that. That post route was enough. Love it. All right. So I got some questions. <clears throat> All right. The uh the belldozer. So loved that, right? You've got a guy who was supposed to be Oklahoma's quarterback, and they're like, you know, he's okay at throwing. He's not great. And Laundry Jones came back for another season that year, so he was still there and relevant. So uh, you know, you got the belldozer, and that that like you said. Nobody could stop it. And he was a smart quarterback, so he would just wait. Blockers would run in front of him, and then he would run behind the blockers. And nobody could figure out that, hey, the blockers are going to be where he's going to run. Um, but it worked. And uh, I have a question. Blake Bell and Damian Williams, the running back for Oklahoma and the quarterback turned tight end in the NFL for uh, for Oklahoma this year, both played for Kansas City in 2019 during the Super Bowl. Which one of them had more rushing touchdowns in the 2012 college football season? I go with Blake Bell. That's a trick question. They tied. It was 11 touchdowns. Like the Belldozer had 11 touchdowns Jesus. as a backup quarterback. As a backup quarterback. He was the, he's, honestly, he was the original Taysom Hill, I think. I think that's the mm. he was the Swiss Army knife. Probably had like fifty uh, first downs. Like they would just bring him in on third down, and he'd go, "Oh, three yards." Here you go. It was so maddening. It was just like this is so dumb. Like he, the guy's doing nothing, and it's just touchdown. Okay. You know wow. what it always felt like to me? It was like you're playing the game Madden, and the other guy chooses the one team that has some glitch, and and they run that play, and you know every time the formation. Exactly. Oh, he's like, going to get three yards. Damn it. Yeah. I bet fucking Stanford wishes they had the belldozer. <laughs> so they're up to three, and then, you know, Pitt, 
not scared of that, I assume. After the Oklahoma game, I think I think the amount of time I texted like my brothers, my friends, just being like, like, look at the schedule. Like, look at all the games I do is, you know, Pitt BC, Wake Forest, and then USC, and USC is like disappointing as hell this year. Like that, it's just USC. That's all you gotta do. You gotta go to USC and win. Next three games are easy. And I think Honestly, everyone on Notre Dame's football team was also texting their buddies being like, hey, it's just USC at this point because they go to Pittsburgh and look like dog shit. I mean, Pittsburgh was Pittsburgh has had some good teams over the years. This was not one of them. This was not a good Pittsburgh team. This was they had Aaron Donald. They didn't have much else. Um, and this was, I think, Aaron Donald's junior year. Um, you said everybody on the team was also texting their buddies. Who was Manti Teo texting? He's texting his dead ex-girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> just sending prayers. He was he was probably just not texting anybody. He was probably just praying to people because that's more his jam. But at some point during the fourth quarter, I just accepted that they were going to lose. Like I, I was like, that's it. And just in my head, I'm like, that's what I get for getting my hopes up. You know, like for actually thinking that this team was different because they were down twenty to six. They we're obviously doing the same thing that I was and just saying, we just have USC left. That's all we have to think about. And Eric Olson got benched. And then I don't think it was any better for a while. Uh, it, it was just such a poor back and forth game. Uh, Olson then came late. Finally, like they finally, the offense got going. They hit some big plays. Sent it to overtime, and I have one of like my favorites is the the second overtime. So Pitt has so Notre Dame doesn't score in the second overtime, uh, or was it first overtime? It was second overtime. Notre Dame doesn't score. Sounds right. They fumbled, and then Pitt just has a thirty-three yard field goal to win. And I'm like, how is this? Like that's the season is a thirty-three yard field goal pit, and they're not going to national championship. Guy misses wide right. Three years later, I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, with uh, I was living in Columbus, Ohio at the time with my brother. I, one of my friends uh, were to one of his friend's places that I don't know. And that guy is the kicker from Pitt who missed that field goal. And he's, <laughs> like, he's like, I don't think you're going to believe this, but I'm the kicker from Pitt who missed that field goal after I told him I went to Notre Dame. And I'm like... Holy shit. And he says to me, no one believes me. Go back and watch. Snap was really high, and I had to hitch in my, in my approach, and that's why I missed wide right. And I go back and watch. That snap was high, and he hitched in his approach. He, he got kind of held out. To, he got kind of hung out to dry by his long snapper because it was not a good snap, and it took a while to get put down. And so... I was like, damn, dude, you're right. But I am very glad that you still missed it. <laughs> like, thank God. The fact that Notre Dame snuck out of that with a win when they were a 33-yard missed field goal away from a loss was, uh, I mean, they were they were living on, uh, on Lene Kaku's good side that year. <laughs> <laughs> when you met the uh, pit kicker in Columbus, was he uh, was he baking cookies that said like, you know, low snaps, uh, laces out, laces out, 
Dan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, look. No, I, I did not feel bad for that pit kicker at all because he had a hot girlfriend. I was like, dude, you did all right. You're, you, <laughs> you, you lived every kicker's dream. Uh, right. So after, after pit, next week's at Boston College kind of gets hyped up because they are rivals. They're both big Catholic schools. But how I like to describe the nerd and BC rivalry is like that scene from Mad Men where Don Draper goes into the elevator and he, one of his employees, I can't remember his name, says, I'm bad for you. And Don Draper replies, I don't think about you at all. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, yeah, BC again. And then they win the game. And that was kind of how this game went. 21-6 win really wasn't close the whole time. Um, uh, this was senior day, not a dry eye. In the house for me, anti-tape. After all, he went through uh, this season. You know, losing a loved one, someone as close, someone that you know he he might have married if things had gone well. He, she would survive her leukemia. They blew out Wake, thirty-eight to nothing. Uh, but the real sort of storyline was not beating Wake. It was the fact that that day, number two and number one. Notre Dame was number three. Number two was Kansas State. They got killed by Baylor. Number one was Stanford. Or was Oregon? Excuse me. And they lost to Stanford, which kind of doubly good for Notre Dame, getting you know a nice quality win in the Stanford game now and having Oregon lose. And Notre Dame come, became number one in the nation after that. They lit up the one uh, on Notre Dame's campus there uh, after that game because while, yeah, they were a field goal away from Pittsburgh beating them, yeah, they had to come back against a Purdue team that was hot trash. They still hadn't <laughs> lost a game. And... Everyone else in the country pretty much had. So they were the number one team in the nation. And you really couldn't argue, despite the fact that, you know, things, bounces, and whatever could have gone elsewhere. They were number one after that. And all they had to do was beat USC. And they were going to the national championship game. USC game? Sure. Yep. Let's do it. So... Last game of the year, USC. They, USC had just like owned Notre Dame over the last decade. Obviously, USC won national championship. That's now not technically a national championship, I want to say. Um, and they were the class of college football for a while there and just had Notre Dame's number, I think, nine of the last ten times they played. USC had won. USC came into that year. That was supposed to be Matt Barkley's, you know, his sort of proving season. He was thought of as a first round pick after his junior year, decided to come back, wanted to be number one overall. They were, you know, hyped up as this, one of the best teams in the country. Matt Barkley plays like shit, got hurt, wasn't even going to play this game. And when I heard that Matt Barkley wasn't going to play, I'm just like, that's, their has got this. This is it. They're going to get yeah. this goddamn Max Wittick. And I had to look up who the starting quarterback was for, for USC in that game because I do not remember Max Wittick's name off the top of my head, but they were not a talented, they just were not a offense that I thought was going to strike fear in Notre Dame's defense that had been so good all year long. So going to that game, very confident, I will say that Notre Dame was going to win, but my God, it felt like edging from start to finish. They kept, they actually had a fairly good offensive game, but they kept getting into the red zone and kicking field goals. They, I think they kicked five field goals in that game. Uh, 
they just so many missed opportunities offensively. If they just score a couple, like one or two of those, end up in touchdowns, it is not a close game whatsoever. But it was just I was edging the whole time. It just was a Travis. It was it was basically the the season, a microcosm of the entire season where you just didn't feel comfortable that they were really that good, and they were. Like that, Matt Teo got a seventh pick in that game. Even though earlier that week the report was in retrospect, that he actually met the real Lene Kakua, or like he found out that week that who he thought was his ex-girlfriend was actually a dude catfishing him the whole time. The um, OG catfish. Yeah, yeah it uh... was. And it really was. Per- Lene Kakua was perfect timing because that was Catfish, the movie, and that show was big then. Like that, the, who's, who's the guy that was the catfish guy? Yeah, Neve. Uh, what's his the, the big weirdo uh, like he <laughs> and he would go and just like basically just reverse Google image shirt search uh, for these people <laughs> and find out that it was not uh, they were not real and right. no one apparently did that for Manti Teo's ex-girlfriend or, or I mean ex-girlfriend uh, <laughs> girlfriend that uh, widowed now uh, widowed him so that, that was right. kind of incredible I remember I spent a whole day um after that season, I mean, when it came out on Deadspin, I just, that's all I did all day was just read that, read reactions to it. I just, I, I could not get enough of it because it was the, one of the best stories I've ever heard in my entire life that some, a guy, not even a girl, a guy could catfish Manti Teo into believing he was his girlfriend and then died. Without hindsight, were you sad when she passed? I, I like, I didn't think it was that big of a deal that and I don't want to say it's that big of a deal, but someone's girlfriend dying of like leukemia. I couldn't believe that they really played it up that much. Like it seems like a deeply personal thing to be giving interviews about before the game. I was just like, that's so it just felt a little morbid to really to be playing this up as like, it's like, let the guy be if his girlfriend really died. I, I don't, don't be asking him that questions about it just give your condolences and keep moving it just was a weird storyline all year so do you think it, like nowadays he goes up and introduces people and says you know hi i'm monte teo uh my ex-girlfriend's dead she died falling off a cliff and died on impact that <laughs> gives the old uh happy gilmore story try to play it up well i have a, i have a theory and this is going to sound very dumb that anti tail i mean not that he was built necessarily as game for the nfl but he lost that edge. Like he, he lost whatever made him anti Teo when he found out that that was not true. Like that, you know, kind of, he, he wore that as like a, I'm, you know, doing whatever the Lord's work, whatever. He's a very religious guy. And like, he wore that. And then once he found out he was, you know, lied to or whatever, he kind of lost whatever it was that made him the Manti Teo that, you know, would make spectacular plays at Notre Dame and never ended up working out for the Chargers or the Saints or wherever he went in the NFL. But now that's not, obviously, again, he was not, he ran like a 4-8. He's not a modern NFL linebacker. That was not his game. But I still do think that even even the stuff he did at Notre Dame well, like he was a physical dude, it just never showed up in the NFL. I think something about that, like it has to rock you when you've, like that's a traumatic, traumatic event, but it also like impacts every single thing you do after that. Cause that's all anyone thinks when you're introducing yourself to somebody, Hey, I'll match the tail. Like I said, you 
you said he probably says it. It's like he doesn't even have to say it. Everyone in the world knows. So sadly, so. it was such like a breakthrough thing too. It wasn't just like a sports story. Like I feel like yeah. like the Today Show. Like every like you know mom in America like knew everyone knew the story. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with sports. It had everything to do with the catfishing, like the modern, unheard of before in man history of mankind because it just wasn't possible uh that now exists that he was the face of that he'll never be he's inextricably linked he'll never he'll never not be the face of what like think of catfishing manti tail comes to every single person's mind mm -hmm. well i mean we'd gone through the era of chat boards and you know message boards, chat rooms, all these different things online. And it was very commonplace in understanding that there will be 42 people in there that say they're a girl and there's only going to be like negative one girl involved, you know, like it, it is all dudes. And so essentially when catfishing came about, it was like, well, yeah, I mean, they've been doing this on message boards and, and I guess now they're just doing it by email or, you know, dating sites or whatever they hook people with. That's, that's the thing. It's like, he was taken advantage of, and he is technically a victim. No one in the world looks at him as a victim. No one, no one, everyone in the world's like, "How are you this dumb? Like, or how are you this naive to believe that that's that some guy, uh, you know, giving, uh, sending you voicemails from across the country, telling you good night that I have leukemia is actually your now girlfriend." So that that's the worst part about it is that just like everyone, like looks almost like looks down at you. Everyone's like, "You're." How could you? How could you be this naive? So that was the USC game where they another dominant start to finish performance that they only won by nine. But thank God they won because that they were going to the national championship game. You couldn't keep them out of it after that. Beautiful. All right, national championship game. A lot of good stories for this one. Not any of them to do with Notre Dame's actual performance. But uh, first off, the one that sticks with me is, so I, Austin Collinsworth uh, was starting safety for Notre Dame at the time. Obviously, I, I work for his father now, Chris Collinsworth at PFF. He worked for PFF briefly, and you know, I asked him about the game, and he said, he went up to Everett before the game uh, in the locker room. Everett Golson, obviously starting quarterback for Notre Dame, and said, you know, hey, you got this, man. We're going we're gonna to do this. And he said he's never seen a person more nervous in his life. He said he could barely even make out a sentence in response. He just was rattled before the ball even kicked off. And now that's not why they lost. But they didn't score a point in the first half. Um, he was not playing well when when the stakes were off the table and there was nothing to lose and they were down like 20 points, 24 points. Then he started actually making something happen offensively, but game was over by then. But the other story from this was I uh, I go to my buddy's place. I'm working at PFF. This is the first this is the first sort of uh, season I'm working at PFF. I'm right out of college. I'm like in a part-time role, and we're actually grading the national championship game. Uh, and oh, no. after the fact, like Eddie Lacy's grade was off the charts, 
but as I'm not grading this game, I'm there watching at my friend's place and I am just downing. Uh, I don't know why I was doing this, but I bought a handle of vodka and a mixer of a bloody, a thing of bloody Mary mix before the game. And I was like, I'm drinking bloody Mary's. (laughs) I don't know what my reasoning was uh, at the time, but I drank, I just started like drinking a lot of them after Eddie Lacey's just like rolling through and I end up going to the hospital at halftime. I, I got alcohol oh, no. poisoning Gosh. that day and my brother had to drive me to the hospital because I just like, I could not fathom that Notre Dame just couldn't stay on the football field. And so I drank so much that I, very embarrassing in retrospect, but I was, I was, I've never before, never since, but I was just in a bad way. I just could not I uh, could not stop throwing up in my buddy's place it was a disaster so it went south don't remember a single did not watch the second half at all of that game uh, probably glad I didn't because it just there I shouldn't have watched the first half either if we're being honest it was just it was one of the worst college one of the worst national championship games um, in BCS history in you know college football playoff history it just was not was not a fair fight it was basically Notre Dame played like they did against Pitt against a real team the part the part that my brother always tells is that i was in the hospital hopefully you guys yes i was in the hospital and the doctor asked me what happened and he said i kept saying they got down 14 to nothing doc (laughs) 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 oh my god that's awesome (laughs) they got down 14 to nothing doc uh, as if like that's a reasoning to get so drunk you can't even exist. So uh, I kind of envision that doctor also being a Notre Dame fan, just being like, "I understand, son." I've been there. <laughs> Who hasn't? No, that was it was irresponsible. Uh, but it was that was the that was the perfect cap to that season. It really was chugging bloodies. I mean, that just seems like maybe not the uh, thinnest drink to have a whole lot of. No, when I when I showed up with it, my uh, my friends like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he was like flabbergasted in himself. He's just like, why the fuck are you bringing Bloody Marys over? It's an, it's like 7 p.m. That's uh, you're a psychopath. And I'm like, it's what I wanted. It's what I was in the mood for. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't in the mood for as many as I ended up drinking, but that's why I went. That's why. That's why I ended up going to the hospital. But How do you feel about one. Bloody Marys now? I will. I, I still drink them. I took a. I took a few years off, but I'll still drink them. But I will not drink more than one, and I will not drink them after 10 a.m. If it, they have to be in the in the morning. I'll drink them on the golf course in the morning. That's about it. So. Mike, we'll get you out of here on this. If you walked into an elevator tonight and that old Florida slash closet Bama fan is there when the door is open, what would you say to him? I said I would say to him, you may be racist, but you were also correct. They were, they were fast. God damn it. Ugh. <laughs> 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 It was, I, I honestly, it, 
I I thought about him the next day. I was just like, that motherfucker is probably so happy, even though he's a fan of Florida. Like, it, it, like how are you? The, the SEC is just different, though. They they're like that down there. They they pride themselves on the fact that when they lose, they lost against the best team, and it's like. Well, you still fucking lost, dude. Like, uh, you, you didn't go to the national championship. You can't take pride in someone else winning it. Sorry. All right. I'm going to do a, another one here. Um, so how does it feel to have this season go down as a, a really great season, go down, you know, even to a degree in the Notre Dame record books, being number one in the country, going to the national championship game, playing Bama. Um, but for this really as – as a, a significant season because it's the first winless team to play for a national championship after having to vacate all your wins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the, the winless thing is absurd. Uh, I honestly, I, I off the top of my head right now, I can't even remember why they vacated all those wins. It was some, there was like a, there was like a trainer that was like doing schoolwork for like five guys. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was a an academic thing, and and then they chose to do it themselves, right? They said we'll vacate the wins. Like it wasn't even like an NCAA mandate; it was some dumb. And it's just like posthumously vacating, I guess posthumously for Lene, but vacating <laughs> wins like that is not is an absurd thing that people do to try to avoid punishment. It means nothing. But uh, I, I I love that season retrospect. It, it, like I said, every game. Not every game, but too many games came down to close fourth quarters. Like the ten, every game was tense, and, and it's it's like you go to the national championship game. I don't care if you get blown out. You, they earned to go there. They, they, there was no debate of whether or not they should be there. So, the season was great. Like it was a fun season. Um, they've uh, they get shit on because they lose big games, and yeah, they do, but. They play in big games. Not every program gets to do that. There's only a handful that actually get to that have even you know been in the playoffs. Yeah, they're not Clemson. Yeah, they're not Bama. Yeah, they're not Ohio State. But you know they they can't be those teams. Like they they have different standards. They have a different. They just have to be a different program altogether. So the fact they got there. Now I wish I wouldn't have gone to the hospital. <laughs> but the rest was great. Not quite no regrets, but yeah. more regrets. One regret. Well, ten regrets. The rest great. Or maybe like six it was, regrets. It was six like it was like sixteen regrets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There you have it. That is the story. And these are the college football stories. Was it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the CFB Stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcast Network at the Stories Pods on Twitter as our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly.
Well, we can't wait to hear that. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> we kept getting little pieces of the story, and we'd be like, "Oh, this uh, is oh," and then we missed the ending of the of the sentence or something. It's like, "Oh man!" Well, and then things were not going well for Notre that, Dame, though. and then you were then you were chugging bloodies, and I was like, "Oh, like this is fun." And then it was like, and then I was in the hospital. I was like, So, Mike, if you think Notre Dame's going to lose, will you be quiet for a few seconds? Hmm. <laughs> Lene's talking right now. Mm-hmm. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.